Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 241, and today's guest is Blake Bartlett, partner at OpenView, an expansion stage VC firm investing in business software companies. Calendly, Zoom, Dropbox, Canva are all great examples of product-led growth companies, or what is commonly known as PLG for short. So what is PLG? As defined on OpenView's website, PLG is an end-user-focused growth model that relies on the product itself as the primary driver of customer acquisition, conversion, and expansion. It's a term that was actually coined by Blake in 2016 and has become the dream business model for entrepreneurs. Thus, I was really excited to interview Blake for our podcast as it was an opportunity to do a deep dive with the expert on PLG models and strategies, which is exactly where we begin our conversation. We take a look at some specific company examples, and he shares some great advice on how to adopt an effective PLG strategy. In this episode of our podcast, we also cover lots of other great topics, like Blake's background story and how he got into the investing world, including his time spent at Battery Ventures, all the details on OpenView and the types of investments he is looking to make, portfolio company examples, including Calendly, advice for companies scaling their hiring during the expansion stage, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. This week's episode is sponsored by MarketMuse, a content intelligence platform that sets the standard for content quality. Their AI-powered software enables companies to create predictably better content at scale that increases traffic and engagement, improves productivity, and drives revenue. Get more out of your content with packages starting at just $0 a month. Plus, you can get 20% off the MarketMuse standard plan by using our code FIZZ20, that's fizz 20 at checkout. Go to marketmuse.com to get started. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Blake. Blake, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, I'm excited to talk to you because we've got a lot to cover in terms of your background, all the great work you're doing at OpenView. But when I think about how we can start off this conversation, I have um, the guru as it relates to product-led growth companies. So I need to start off with that at the beginning here. Um, PLG is such an important category for software companies, and it's something that I think a lot of entrepreneurs aspire to have that happen to their company. Um, So if someone's not familiar with product-led growth, like what does that mean? Just to kind of cover the base there. So I can give you the official definition because that's one of the beauties <laughs> of having coined the term at, at OpenView is that uh, that we own the definition as well, which is product-led growth is a go-to-market strategy that relies on the product itself as the primary driver of customer acquisition, conversion, and expansion. So really it's all about your product being the primary go-to-market channel. What that means in practice is that it's all about self-service. So this is pretty standard for most uh, software products that we use uh, in the workplace today, but you as an individual user, regardless of what your role or title is in an organization, you can go and find a new product like Slack or like Calendly or any number of other products that we all use on a daily basis. You can sign up for the product. You don't have to pay anything. You can start using it, see if you get value out of it. If you get value out of it, you can bring your team to the product as well. At some point, you will need to convert, but that's likely through swiping a credit card as opposed to going through a lengthy sales process. And so that new way of adopting software uh, is uh, has implications for how you build the software and how you distribute the software in order to enable that new customer journey. And so all of that is what we're referring to when we describe product-led growth. 
and uh, you know, you've gave some examples, but like, are there a couple of companies or even one doesn't matter that have really shined when you think about a PLG growth strategy? Well, I think the best example is probably Zoom. Um, because we all have relied upon it so much in the last two years with the pandemic. And that wouldn't have become the case. Uh, Zoom would not have become a global phenomenon that we use for business, but also that Saturday Night Live uses to host their show or that you used to attend. I attended Zoom weddings. I did Zooms with my parents and grandparents. I mean, we've all done these things in the last 12, 12 to 24 months. And that wouldn't have been the case if the only way you could adopt Zoom is by going through an enterprise sales process. It would not have become the lifeblood of the global economy and the the global sort of broader outside of the economy, just day-to-day communication the way that it had if you hadn't been able to sign up for it uh, in such a seamless way. Uh, And then obviously, once you hit that 40-minute limit, if you want the premium version, you can convert and become a paid customer. But again, that was through more of a consumer-like journey than it was through an enterprise sales-like journey. And so when you remove the friction, from adopting the product and anybody can sign up for any reason in any use case, you see the potential for something like Zoom in the last 24 months, as opposed to you know needing to rigorously qualify everybody that comes into your funnel and only saying yes to the best fit customers that are directly in your ICP. There's nothing wrong with that, but it does limit uh, and your ability to become a mass market product like you've seen with Zoom or Slack or many other of these companies. Yeah. And I, the, the other product that I love is Canva that, um, you know, it was introduced to me, I think in the early days of the product. So I've been a long time fan, but talk about a great experience. And it's something that you can sign up for, start to use free. And in one of your PLG videos, you talk about, you know, total addressable market. Like they could have instead focused on just working with designers and going after people in a specific category, but instead the world is their oyster and their total addressable market is pretty much anybody that has access to the internet. Exactly. Yeah, they they put a helpful tool out there and anybody that needs to design anything can use it, Uh, whether it's a social media team, whether it's a designer, whether it's uh, for personal use cases. And that's allowed Canva to become, you know, we'll we'll see where they ultimately land, but their projections were to get to a billion dollars of ARR by the end of this year. So right about this time, if they had did not have self-service and they couldn't sell to anybody at all hours of the day and night for any use case, they would not be a billion dollar ARR company in the short number of years that they've been around. Uh, there's just, there's no way to get to that level of scale and mass market adoption if you're needing to sell every single account uh, on a one-by-one basis. Yeah, so their their credit card cash register is just ringing constantly, ding, 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 ding. <laughs> exactly. So what should entrepreneurs think about as they're trying to adopt a PLG? So- the, the biggest difference is that um, it's not just having self-serve as an option. Um, it also means that you have to build the product differently because in the old world, you sold to executives um, in a top-down fashion. So VP level folks or C-level folks that have budget um, that probably aren't actually the users of the software themselves. It's their team that uses the software. So they're actually considering different things when they're making this evaluation decision. They're considering the KPIs this is going to affect and the interoperability with other systems. And does this have the right security uh, provisions that is important for our enterprise company? Um, what's the budget um, and or what's the price point and how does that relate to our budget? It's all of these you know important things 
But quite frankly, they aren't really about the actual uh, usability of the software, the features of the software. Um, and, and so when you're instead going to that individual end user, they don't think like their boss. And so having a self-service version of the old product isn't going to resonate with that individual because the product wasn't built for them in the first place. It was built for a prior era. It was built for their boss. Uh, and it was built to sort of solve different problems. And so if you actually flip it on the head and said, and say, instead of thinking about the owner of this budget or the owner of this department, let me think about the actual person who's using the software and build the software for that person, for their pain, and then distribute it to them through self-service. So to give an example, um, if you're building sales software, historically, the only person you could really get to adopt the software was sales leadership, sales management, that VP of sales, that CRO, perhaps if it was something uh, in enablement, maybe the enablement leader or the sales ops leader, but you're generally talking about VP level, C-level, maybe director level individuals. In the product-led growth world, you're talking about individual SDRs, individual AEs, and building software for them based on their workflow, based on things that can make their job easier. And you're speaking directly to them and what it's like to be a sales rep, not what it's like to be a CRO. So it really changes everything. It can seem like this subtle thing of you just need a self-service sign-up form in front of your product and then boom, you're ready to go. But that's kind of deceiving. There's really a lot more under the hood that needs to be considered when you're building a self-service PLG-oriented product. Yeah, that's great, great feedback. All right, let's rewind the clock. So about you, where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? So I grew up in Southern California, specifically the San Diego area. Uh, my whole family still lives there. So kind of born and bred in Southern California. Um, and as a child, I would say I was, uh, I was a very curious child. Um, you know, all children ask the question why a lot. And I think I asked it, you know, 10x more than every other child. <laughs> I always want to understand the context behind something. What is this? Why is it that way? What do people do with it? Um, uh, why, why, why? Um, and, and that's kind of continued to this day where I am a self-described curiosity junkie. And that's very much why I love being uh, in venture capital so much is that I get to talk to people um, all day, every day and ask them why. Why did you start this company? Why is this a good market um, to go after? Why now? Why your product? What makes you different um, over your competitors? Why should I choose you? All of those types of questions. What's the big ultimate why? What's your vision for building this? Uh, and so I found it to be the, the perfect uh, swim lane for me to be in, given that uh, intellectual curiosity background. All right. So that leads me to the question of uh, asking you why. So why did you decide to attend USC and, and what did you study there? So USC was interesting. I, um, I actually ironically had um, a school in, in Southern California, USC, and then schools in Boston that I was looking at as well. And so that was the, the debate. I say ironically because um, I ultimately decided to stay closer to home and stay in Southern California for school, but eventually moved to Boston and lived in Boston for, for 11 years um, after the fact when I joined Battery Ventures and then at OpenView as well. Uh, so I eventually made it to Boston, but uh, but decided to stay in SoCal for, for school. And, and really, I think um, there was a few different personal factors. I had a, a number of close friends that were going from my high school to USC. So I actually got to be roommates with my best friend from high school. So that was a really cool experience. There was something about the, the D1 big football school appeal um, that was uh, you know just getting into that sort of environment that I thought would be excited or exciting. 
And then also there was another personal element, which is I grew up in a very small town um, uh, where everything closed at 5 p.m. And I was looking at a few other schools where they were in small towns where everything closed at 5 p.m. And I kind of wanted a different experience uh, where I'd be at a big school and, and USC very much is that tens of thousands of students. It's in the heart of the second largest city in America. Um, and I just sort of felt like I would get exposed to, again, back to the curiosity piece, a lot of new things uh, and a lot of new things to explore and discover. Um, so I was excited about it for those reasons. And some big waves with the football program with the, the new coach signing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's uh, it's been a whole dramatic uh, set of, uh, you know, years <laughs> at USC for many reasons uh, on the football program yeah. and beyond. But uh, but nonetheless, when I was there, it was the Pete Carroll years and it was super yep. exciting. Oh, you know, won a fun. national championship, had a few bold games. Um, and plenty of tailgating and, and a lot of fun hat. Now, I didn't realize this, but there's some really successful tech entrepreneurs that are USC alum, Mark Benioff, yep. <laughs> Aaron Levy from Box, and then the founder of Kinko's, which, you know, I mean, I guess you could consider them you know, more retail, but there's certainly some level of hardware of what they do. So, uh, and I'm sure that's just kind of like the tip of the iceberg of some of the super successful ones. I'm sure there's lots of others from USC that um, have uh, attended there as well. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was funny at the time, you know, I, I did study business and business was, was, and still is the most popular major um, at USC, but, you know, most folks weren't talking about um, tech and weren't talking about startups. There was an entrepreneurship program, but it wasn't really startup entrepreneurship. It was more, you know, starting uh, more of a, you know, kind of the traditional mold. So, you know, raising venture capital and some of those things that I think are probably much more a part of the conversation today. When I was there in the early 2000s, uh, we weren't yet at that sort of... Um, at that point. And, and so the, the famous alumni was not yet Mark Benioff, um, very much would be uh, the case today. And so, um, so I, at the time it was kind of a little bit more blazing a trail. It was, you know, a lot of people going into commercial real estate, a lot of people going into consulting, a lot of people going into investment banking, more of the traditional paths that you would do after an undergraduate business school program. And so startups and startup funding and those kinds of things were, were more unique. But I think, you know, as you've seen in, in many undergraduate programs, this is now where everybody wants to work. And so it's it's actually much more cool to go work at a tech company or much more cool to go and start a startup today than it is to go and be an investment banker. Um, but back in the early 2000s, investment banking was still pretty cool. <laughs> and most of my peers were going that path. And so what did you do after undergrad? So I thought I would go one of those paths. Um, I, I Not the investment banking path, but, you know, some of the, the elective courses that I had taken at school uh, we were taught by uh, former consultants, and we did a lunch, a bunch of uh, you know HBS case studies, and and I really like that consulting uh, approach of you know not just thinking about one aspect of a business, but really thinking about the totality of the marketplace and the competitor dynamics and the supplier dynamics, and really you need to consider the totality of a situation in order to solve a specific business problem. And, and, you know, I, I guess I would today call that systems thinking about business. I, I really like that holistic view. So I thought I was going to go that, uh, that route, but then I had a really good friend who was working at a growth equity firm um, who said, you should come in and give your, your, your uh, give, give a shot to this, um, you know, give, give this a try because it's actually, even though it is finance, it's not finance like you're thinking. It's not just building Excel models 
all day long um, and being sort of an Excel jockey. Not that there's anything wrong with that. It's an important skill. Uh, but he said, really, what you're doing is talking to entrepreneurs all day. And like I described, asking those why questions and then getting off the call and deciding, is this a company we should do something with? Is this an interesting business? Could there be an opportunity here really you know, from that holistic evaluation standpoint, as opposed to does it have the right numbers? And so it ended up being something that wasn't on my radar screen originally, but ended up being the perfect path for me um, to, to pursue. So after spending some time there, like what, what did you take away from that first experience? And then what did you do after? So I think the biggest learning was uh, it's an, ex- an extremely steep learning curve. Um, you know, really in many ways it was a sales job, uh, and I think you know your first sales job, learning how to cold call, learning how to talk to people, learning how to you know handle objections, learning how to deal with rejection, getting hung up on. That's always a steep learning curve. Uh, it might have been a little bit steeper as well because you know it's entry level. I was you know 21, 22 years old, and the people that I'm talking to are CEOs of companies who they might be <laughs> twice my age, and they might be running you know multi million dollar companies. And I know nothing about business besides what I read in the textbook. I know nothing <laughs> about their industry, and yet I'm trying to have a You're cold calling them. <laughs> I'm cold calling them and trying to have a pure level conversation, pretending like I know what I'm talking about and saying, you know, wouldn't you like us to invest in your business? Here's what you should do five years from now. Uh, and so very, very steep. Um, so I, I would say the biggest thing is learning how to get comfortable with that, learning how to talk to CEOs about their business, um, all the, the standard sales skills, but then also within this context of talking to founders, talking to CEOs, trying to actually um, learn how to be an advisor to them. I don't think I did it in my first two years, but you, you start to learn how to mimic it at least and get more comfortable with it. And then you develop the actual skill over time. So really that communication, um, you know, talking to entrepreneurs, talking to founders that I really had no business talking to, and then also learning how to learn fast. Um, I've never learned it. I've never known anything about this market before, but I'm talking to a company. It's an interesting company. There's other players in the space. How can I get smart really, really quickly and um, on on spaces and get up to speed? And so, learning how to learn quickly, what's important, what's not, learning how to talk to founders—all of these things were the most important skills. That once you come up that super steep learning curve, are invaluable. Whether I stayed in venture and in, in, in private equity, which I did, or if I'd even you know gone on to do something else, just super valuable skill sets. So, what brought you to Battery Ventures? So. Um, the firm that I was at um, uh, in LA is called Kane Anderson. It was a little bit more of a generic, um, you know, generalist firm, I should say. Um, so would invest in tech, but also in non-tech. Um, and I had self-selected into tech and really enjoyed that. Uh, and also um, wanted to have a little bit more flexibility to look at tech companies, but also look at different stages um, and have that flexible sort of more thesis-oriented approach, which is, you know, if we find the right, you know, an interesting space, we could play that space early if we find the right disruptive player um, and, and make a more venture style bet. Or if we find somebody who's already got all the momentum and you know it's more of a growth equity play, great, we can make a growth investment. And then in the battery context, there actually is even a private equity strategy where if it's more of a mature category or company, you could even consider buying the business. And so having that leeway to look at tech companies exclusively, and then to be able to look at you know a lot of different tools in the tool bag, um, depending on sort of uh, stage and, and, and how you want to play a thesis, uh, I really like that a lot. And so um, Battery was the place where I found the ability to go and, and, and pursue that. And so that's what moved me to Battery and, and out to Boston uh, geographically as well. And, and you worked in different 
categories. So you originally started with a little bit of hardware, then you moved to consumer with, you know, companies like Wayfair and Glassdoor. So, so talk about some of your portfolio companies that you work with and then how you evolved to, uh, you know, more software oriented. Yeah. Well, when I came into to battery, you know, after two years of, of sourcing oriented training at Kane Anderson, um, I was, um, I really was still a generalist, you know, kind of didn't really have strong preferences towards any specific areas of tech. I was just very much, uh, in, in many ways, a coin-operated sales rep. Um, I knew how to find an opportunity. I knew how to chase the opportunity. Uh, I knew how to smell what smelled right for a potential investment. Um, and I was just like a dog with a bone with anything that fit that profile and kind of didn't care what it was. I just wanted to get deals done. And so, yeah, the first deal that I got done was an infrastructure hardware monitoring business. Didn't know anything about uh, infrastructure or networks or network monitoring prior to that. The, the next business was Glassdoor, um, you know, then Wayfair and then Sprinkler and the, the SaaS space. So it was a little bit of everything really because of this generalist background that I had and the opportunistic approach that I had to sourcing. But then over time, um, you know, after doing it for a while and, and sort of figuring out both what, what I liked and what I was good at, what made sense to me. And then quite frankly, you know, what, what got done at the firm that I was at, I ended up, um, you know, really coalescing much more around SaaS. And then, you know, it's been basically all SaaS for me, um, you know, since then. All right. So let's fast forward. You're at OpenView now. So like what led you to OpenView? Because OpenView is thought of as more of, you know, expansion stage. So was that the stage that, you know, particularly excited you? Yeah, I would say, you know, kind of continuing to go down that, you know, that journey that's a little bit self-directed um, within venture where you sort of find what you like, you know, both sectors, you find what you like stage-wise, um, you, you develop that classic pattern recognition, um, you know, that everybody refers to in venture, you sort of start to find your lane. Um, and for me, I started to find the lane that, you know, super early stage was too early for me. Um, when it's just a pure idea, I didn't know how to analyze an idea. I didn't have an operational background. I wasn't technical. So, you know, two people in a garage building something that, uh, you know, isn't really, doesn't really exist yet, but, you know, could be big. I just didn't have a way to, to assess that and feel confident in it. Um, and then at the later stages, you know, I felt confident in assessing the pre-IPO investments. However, and, and it's funny to say <laughs> that I thought it was really competitive at the time because it's only gotten that much more competitive. It's like, you know, 100x more competitive today than it was back in 2010 when I was starting to develop this perspective. But sort of thought, you know, once it gets to that growth stage, it's obvious. Everybody has the same top 10 companies list. Um, and so while you can still make money um, at, the, at the growth stages, um, I sort of felt like the only way to stand out was just surely through what your term sheet looked like. Um, and, and also there wasn't really as much help that the company needed. Uh, it was kind of more of a just add water situation because everything was working. And so I right. said, all right, well, what if I found something that's in the middle of these two? It's not super early. It's not obvious in growth, but it's kind of right at that inflection point when it goes from early to starting to grow. Uh, it goes from, you know, is it working to, yes, it is working and now let's scale it. Um, and that sort of inflection point of the curve, you know, I, I came up with my own term for it. I, I started calling it emerging stage when I was at Battery um, and sort of thought that that could be my, my lane of what felt good and what made sense to me. And also there wasn't anybody else that was dedicated to that exclusively at Battery at the time. So it felt like a, a little bit of a unique territory. Um, and so that's kind of what I did in, in, you know, Sprinkler and a number of other deals um, ended up being at that stage and that strategy. 
Um, and then come to find, I got to know the team over at OpenView across town in, in Boston. And the entire firm has that same exact strategy. They just don't call it emerging stage. They call it expansion stage. And it's not just that we invest against that. It's that there is then a whole content practice around companies at that stage. And there's uh, you know, a, a platform team to support companies at that stage. Everything is aligned towards helping companies at this stage and sort of had this, you know, aha moment that if I really believe in this stage, if I really believe in this strategy that I say that I believe in so, so much, I kind of don't have a choice. I have to go join the firm um, that's 100% focused on this. This was the obvious decision. And so, um, so yeah, it, it became a, a no brainer. Uh, and then I made the move over there in 2013. And you you talk, talked about the platform, right? Which OpenView was one of the first VC firms that really had, it was, I don't even think you guys call it a platform. That's how early it was of helping out companies with content and marketing, sales, um, you know, recruiting. These are all things that VC firms provide generally now, but you guys were really early providing that, you know, service to portfolio companies. Yeah, yeah, there, there's definitely, we weren't the first, you know, there have been others that have had, um, you know, teams dedicated to it. Um, and then there certainly was a dynamic that was more prevalent um, before. And you still see today where you might have individuals, you might have a recruiting partner or a talent partner, you might have a person in marketing that, that helps. So there's always been folks at venture firms that are there to help. But yeah, I would say OpenView and a few other firms were probably earlier in terms of creating a program around it and creating a whole team around it. Uh, and we've always had the approach of, well, we're so focused. We only invest in one kind of company, B2B software companies, so SaaS and infrastructure, at one stage of their development. We call it the expansion stage, which is really sort of a fancy word for describing companies post-product market fit and starting to scale, um, which could be a Series A or a Series B more, more often than not. Um, and if we're only focused on those types of companies at that stage, and then we're also pretty concentrated in the investments that we make, we don't make, you know, a uh, hundred investments a year. We make, you know, five to 10 investments per year. And so um, this focus then will allow us to go deep with operational support because basically all of these companies um, are all experiencing the same, regardless of what market they're selling into and what product they're building, they're all experiencing the same. We got to build a go-to-market team and, and make it repeatable. You know, we have to figure out our pricing and packaging. We have to go from the CEO being the only executive at the company and doing everything in the business to hiring a management team. So the CEO can go from doing to leading you know, the classic working on the business versus working in the business. Like all of these things are what happens when you're at the expansion stage. And so great, let's build a platform team, which we call the expansion team uh, in order to help with that. So there's, you know, recruiters, there's folks uh, with, with backgrounds in pricing and packaging and product monetization. There's people who have built sales teams before. There are people that now increasingly as we evolve our model um, that are experts and have spent their careers in product-led growth and removing friction in funnels and increasing conversion rates. And so if we can take this set of services, so to speak, um, point it at a specific population of companies at a specific stage of their development, where there's a lot of commonalities, we can not just have this generic team that's there to help and hopefully be a SWAT team to respond to your request, but can actually be proactive in saying, here's the next thing you're going to struggle with. Here's the program that we have for that. You know, Press this magic button and it will go away. Um, that's kind of the intent of it. And so it's, it's really strategically intentional that the focus of our strategy enables this depth of operational support on the back end. You can't have one without the other. 
such an amazing, valuable resource for entrepreneurs to have at their disposal and all the lessons learned from, you know, what has been worked with other companies, what didn't work. It's uh, it's just amazing. So now uh, one of your investments, Calendly, like I wanted to talk about that one, just kind of like the, how does the investment process work with OpenView? Like when did you first meet the founder? What got you excited? And then, you know, Fast forward, you know, you led their Series B, a $350 million round earlier this year. So talk about the life cycle of that investment, because I'm sure there was, you know, years before that you met the founder or how, how did it all come together? Yeah, so so that's a, an interesting one. Um, you know, usually a lot of times in venture, and especially for us at OpenView, given our, our strategy, you know people for, for years uh, before you invest. Uh, and so in the case of Calendly and, and the CEO, Tope, I met him. Um, I think it was in 2016, um, and I met him. You know, the classic way that uh, VCs often meet companies, which is, "Hey, I'm going to City XYZ um, to meet one company that I know of, or maybe we have a board meeting there. Um, who else should I meet while I'm in town?" Uh, and so I was going to Atlanta for something, and I was going through the. Uh, there was it was pretty new at the time, but it was the Atlanta Tech Village. It's now a staple within the local community, but it was kind of a, a co-working space, a community space for startups and things like that. Um, and, and sort of asked the folks that run it, who should I meet when I'm in town? I'm clearly coming by the, the ATV, as they call it, the Atlanta Tech Village. Um, who of your tenants or who of the people hanging out at the ATV should I meet with? And there was a, a list of folks. And right at the top of the list was Topawatana, the CEO of Calendly. And so I met him, um, you know, immediately it made sense to me. Um, and then it was a year later in, in the summer of 2017 that we actually had the opportunity to make our first investment into the company. So it took a year um, and that was, an, a, we can get into some of the history, but it was, it was a smaller initial investment. Uh, and then we've actually had an opportunity to make a couple of subsequent investments along the way um, with the, the most recent and most, um, you know, largest one being the one that's been announced, the, the $350 million Series B. And I mean, talk about a great product experience, right? And product-led growth, right? It's like, you've got that, you know, both, you know, the, the business user or consumer signs up for it, solving a problem that everybody absolutely hates and despises of scheduling. And then the recipient receives this wonderful tool that they're like, wait, this is magical. I can sign up for this. So it's just that perfect uh, acquisition strategy built in. Yeah, it's it's the inherent virality. You know, meetings are inherently viral. Like you can't have a meeting with yourself, <laughs> so therefore that creates a viral opportunity. And and it's very parallel to Zoom. You know, you can't host a Zoom with yourself. There always needs to right. be at least one other person on the other end. And so Zoom is inherently viral. Um, you know, Calendly is very similar because meetings are are inherently viral. Whether you're scheduling the meeting or hosting the meeting, you know, there's multiple participants, and that you know acts as both a um, you know, a great opportunity to get the intended value out of the product. You know, Zoom is a great product. Calendly is a great way to schedule things. Um, but it also ends up being this, uh, this way to discover and promote products as well. And it really is your users doing it on your behalf. You know, somebody sending out their Calendly link, they're using the product, but they're also promoting the product. And then, as you mentioned, when that recipient clicks on the link and goes through the scheduling experience, um, you know, it's a very delightful experience and it solves the problem. It's a lot better than all the back and forth email, but they also just discovered Calendly by using Calendly. And right when they get that, you know, invite on their calendar uh, and they have that delightful endorphin experience of, wow, that was so much easier than it usually is. That's when you see the call to action of get your own Calendly page for free. 
and your email is already populated there. You click one button and you're ready to go. And so that natural virality combined with the fact that both people in that equation are experiencing the same pain at the same time, um, they're both equal in that regard. Uh, it creates a, a beautiful viral opportunity to lean into from a product like growth standpoint. So what's the latest fund from OpenView that you're investing out of? So most recent fund we're investing out of right now is our sixth fund. And as you know, you've already talked about the focus of the firm and the focus that you, uh, you know, align yourself with, but like when you're looking for an, an entrepreneur, a company, or like, 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 what are you ideally targeting for your investments? Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's some of the, the high level focus things that I mentioned, which is, you know, only invest in B2B software. You know, we tend to look at, you know, companies at this stage of their development, the expansion stage, which is really just, again, a fancy term for, for post-product market fit, um, series A, series B centric more often than not, um, some flexibility on that front. So, you know, that's kind of the starting point, but then within that, you know, we, we think about factors that are pretty similar to, to what, what others think about, you know, how large is the market opportunity? And also just as important as how large the, is the market opportunity? What is the dynamic in the market you know, that's causing you know, the, the why now effectively? What, why is now the right time to build something new in this space or to go and try to you know, make this space happen for the very first time? What are the things that are catalyzing this, those market dynamics? So think about those things. We think about you know, value prop and the strength of the value prop you know, just being easy to use isn't good enough. Like what is the business value that it delivers? Um, you know, what makes this a product that you can't live without? Even if you can't sort of attribute it to hard dollar ROI, it's like, what's the ROI of Slack? I don't know. What's the ROI of Calendly? It's like, I don't know, but I can't live without it. Um, and, and so that's another way to think about value prop. Um, you know, certainly think about uh, uh, the defensible competitive advantage, you know, or, or what's the moat, um, whether it's a, a current moat, you solved a really hard technical problem and you have some IP around it, um, or if it's more of a potential moat in the future, which is more of a business model moat, you know, if successful, we can create a network effect, um, you know, those types of things. So, so what is the defensibility or what can be the defensibility over time, you know, team, you know, is the team uniquely suited to do this? So, Pretty similar things that uh, that I think other venture firms would would look at and solve for. Now, one of the things that has helped you build your brand and this whole concept of PLG is the content you guys produce, and most notably your your podcast. So, like, why did you decide to start a podcast to you know really hone in on on this topic? Yeah, well, I, I think that um, first and foremost, it was because there was one. Well, you know, there's a couple of reasons. One, um, we thought that there was a huge opportunity to look at this new breed of, of software company and this new breed and new way of, of doing software startups, you know, both in terms of how you build the product and how you distribute it, making the customer journey start with self-service. There still is a role for sales, but sales comes in later to help with expansion as opposed to convincing you to buy and use the product uh, you know, out of the gates. So this new model, we, we thought, you know, there's, there's, there is a growing wave here. There will continue to be, you know, many companies that are built on this trend. There's only a handful today, but we think that this is a better way to do software. This is a better way to build a business and it leads to better results in terms of, you know, faster growth and more capital efficiency. So this should exist in the world. And we want to evangelize that the way to describe these businesses is product-led growth. So some of the, you know, there's the internal 
we wanted to make sure that that folks were aware of product-led growth, that we didn't just write one single article um, and, and kind of let it lie, but that we were constantly talking about it and constantly educating the market that there is a new business model out there. It's called product-led growth. Here's the definition. Here are examples. And that will sort of increase the likelihood of you know the term catching hold and turning into a movement in a community. So there's kind of some of those strategic reasons. But then also I'd say, additionally, there was also a lot of misconceptions or misperceptions about product-led growth. Um, you know, many folks would say, well, you know, that doesn't work in my market. You know, I sell to traditional industries. That would never work in my market. I sell to the enterprise. That would never work in my market. I am a security company and we only sell to the CISO. And I just fundamentally didn't believe that that any of those arguments held water. <laughs> I thought that, you know, everywhere you look, every piece of software has end users. Those end users all have the same ability to adopt software on their smartphone, on, you know, as a browser extension or in another marketplace of a product that they're using. Everybody has this freedom and autonomy to adopt products. So it really doesn't matter the end market. People are looking for software. They're looking for software to solve their business problems. And it's no longer just the executives. It's all of the individual end users themselves. And so this will be a trend that does affect and is already affecting basically every software market that you can imagine. And so part of the intent was if we put a podcast out there and if we put a lot of product-led growth content out there, it can help dispel some of these misperceptions that, that that only works for Slack. That only works for a couple of those crazy companies out in the Bay Area. That'll never work for me. Um, and it really start to help people see that product-led growth is already everywhere. And it's this growing, rising tide that is going to only continue to uh, impact every software category under the sun. And it's so well done. Like I'm, I'm envious because I wish I had like the same type of graphics you have for your, you know, PLG one, two, threes. Like those are just great content, you know, easy to digest, you know, incredible, uh, you know, value in terms of what you learn. And that's, you know, kind of like quick segment. So uh, if anyone listening does not follow Blake on LinkedIn or the open view podcast, definitely click subscribe. Cause there's so many great lessons learned from all those episodes. All right. So one of the key things that is important for uh, entrepreneurs in that expansion stage is team building. Recruiting is very difficult, especially in today's world where it's so competitive. There's a tremendous amount of opportunities with a limited number of job seekers. So what advice do you give your portfolio companies as it relates to scaling hiring over that expansion stage? Yeah, well, there there is a lot of things that um, that we could point to there. Um, you know, there's there's you know perennial challenges or perennial best practices uh, within talent and recruiting, and then there are you know acute challenges right now given um, how challenging the and how competitive the talent market is. Whether you're competing for for new talent um, or whether you're sort of um, either seeing or worried about, you know, the great resignation um, that, that many have referred to in, in terms of folks leaving to, to do something else. Um, and so there, there's kind of a number of factors, but I really think at the highest level, you know, the idea of going slow to go fast, I think a lot of times people can say, we need to hire, we need to hire right now. And then that can lead to an element of franticness of, you know, getting searches out there before the job description is, you know, really well baked or before you even really know what the role is, you know, just because we we need sales leadership doesn't mean that 
you know, it's, it's, uh, there is one flavor of sales leadership. What specifically is the role? What specifically is the profile? Are we speaking to that in the job description? You know, those types of things where it can be easy to get out in front of your skis and feel like you're making progress, but really you're just kind of running around, um, you know, like a chicken with your head cut off. And so like going slow to go fast, be intentional about things, um, you know, from a search standpoint, but then also understand that it's not just a recruiting challenge. It's not just hire, you know, every recruiting firm in the world and pay as much as you can. And then we'll just be able to win all the talent. Um, there also has to be a, an element of, it's kind of like, you know, a, a funnel, you know, for, for a, attracting prospects to your product. Um, just because you get people to the top of the funnel doesn't mean that they're going to convert. Um, do you actually have a good candidate experience um, or is it, you know, a frictionful candidate experience that turns people off and people sort of bounce out of your candidate funnel. So, you know, candidate experience is, is important. Um, but then ultimately, a lot of times once you get to that bottom of the funnel, once you've had a great candidate experience, you know, do you actually have a culture? Do you actually have a company where people are saying good things about it? Um, you know, where, whether it's on your classic glass door reviews, or if it's just because people these days are informed and they have things that available at their fingertips, they are going to reach out to your current team. They are going to reach out to your former team members. And what are those people going to say about your organization from a cultural standpoint, from an ability to be successful standpoint, you know, from an approval of, of management and management system standpoint? Um, again, this is another way to, you know, if you just go fast and if you just think it's a recruiting problem and pay the recruiting firms and, you know, just pay more money to win, win the candidates, um, but you haven't actually solved some of these, you know, more under the hood problems, um, you're only really kind of kicking the can on challenges. So, you know, going slow to go fast, being intentional about things, not um, letting the sort of fear of missing out or fear that you're going slow um, cause you to um, take un unnatural actions and skip steps. I think that that is, you know, the most important thing from a starting point um, within the expansion stage. Then there's a bunch that we could say about how do you then, once you get that nailed, how do you scale it? Um, but, you know, you, you got to have the firm foundation before you can scale anything. It's kind of taking a next step of if you are a PLG company and you're building out a growth team, like what should that look like as far as supporting, you know, that PLG mindset? Well, I think that's a really good example of the, the going slow to go fast, because a lot of people think like, well, everybody's talking about PLG. We should do PLG. How do you do PLG? Hire somebody with growth in their title. Uh, put the job <laughs> description out there. Great. Like now we're going to solve all of our PLG problems. Um, and, and that is not taking the step back and saying, okay, well, do we actually even have a PLG product? <laughs> you know, can, can you adopt our product on a self-service basis? If not, well, then a growth leader who really helps you improve the throughput of a self-service funnel isn't going to help you um, because you haven't solved the, the starting problems first. So going slow to go fast on PLG is, you know, are we, do we even have a PLG product? Okay, great. We do. Well, what flavor of growth leader do we want? Um, because growth is a very nebulous term. A lot of people say growth and they mean marketing. Um, a lot of people say growth and they mean growth product. And so this idea of growth marketing versus growth product, and what do you need? Um, and then also, how do you know that when you see somebody who says they're a growth leader, are they speaking the same flavor of growth that you're, you're speaking? Again, growth product versus growth marketing, getting really clear on that, uh, which is ultimately getting back to the, you know, the, the talent piece, 
getting really clear on the role and the jobs to be done from a human standpoint. What is the problem we're trying to solve with this individual as opposed to just chasing flashy titles like you know growth leader um, as an expectation that that will be the magic bullet that solves your you know desire to do PLG. All right, let's move on to some quick hit questions here. Three favorite apps you can't live without. Assuming Calendly is probably one of them. <laughs> Calendly is one. Uh, and then in my personal life, I am just fully addicted to audio content, constantly listening to it. Um, and so there, you know, I, I use pretty standard things there. So the Apple Podcast app, um, Audible, and Spotify. But then also I'm a huge fan of a newer app called Speechify, which allows you to take anything that's not currently audio content. So like a written article uh, and turn it into um, basically your own personalized uh, podcast stream, or you can turn anything into an audio book. And so I find myself using that to, you know, quote unquote, read the internet while I'm doing the dishes um, of all of those great medium posts um, that, that I haven't had a chance to read on my actual browser. So all in on the audio content, and that's a, a handful of, uh, of things in my audio stack, if you will. Yeah. Thanks for the heads up on Speechable. I haven't heard of that yet. And I, <laughs> there's always medium content that I'm like, I open the tab and never recycle back and miss out. So I could definitely listen to that while I'm going through email. That sounds amazing. <laughs> so Yeah. No. And the other, the other cool thing is you can send it to your mobile and you can listen to it as you would a podcast. But also, ah. if you just want to power through and read faster on your browser, uh, it will read along with you. It'll highlight the words and then read aloud with a robot voice to you, but a really good robot voice, which actually allows you to read like I've noticed myself able to read about 2x the speed that I normally would um, because there's there's something with this like seeing it highlight the words and having it read to you that allows you just to like, so if I'm like hoarding tab browser tabs, I can like power through five tabs and like read, you know, five articles, like, you know, between two meetings, for example, because I have this like, you know, superpower extension. All right. Well, I usually ask the question, any podcast or book recommendations since you host your own podcast, what are a few of the must listen episodes? So we were just talking about the talent piece. Um, one of the recent um, episodes was with Adam Turner, who's the CEO and co-founder of Postscript, which is an open view portfolio company. Um, but they have done an amazing job at, you know, they were remote first prior to the pandemic. So they had some benefit there um, that they were able to just, you know, not skip a beat um, where everybody else was kind of scrambling. But even, you know, um, on top of that, they have just built a world-class organization from a you know, culture standpoint, and a lot of the things I was referencing, you know, the go slow to go fast and why those factors, you know, people are reaching out to your current employees and your former employees. What are they going to say about you? You're asking your current uh, employees to, to give referrals, but, you know, it's not just the referral bonus that causes somebody to want to refer, but do, are they actually proud of the company they work at? Would they want to refer this, you know, to their family and friends? Because like putting themselves out there from a trust standpoint, and saying to their you know, closest confidants that you should want to join my company, this will be a good decision. That is a way weightier um, sort of factor than like you get a few thousand dollars for a referral bonus because it's your reputation. And so um, this, this episode I did with Adam Turner unpacks a lot of these things in great detail. And so some of the things that I was, I was referring to even a few minutes ago uh, or, or things that I learned from him on that podcast episode. So, so highly recommend that one. Uh, and then another one that I would point to, it's, it's another uh, very recent one. Uh, it was with uh, Godard Abel, who is the CEO of G2, formerly G2 Crowd. Um, and so when I got on to, to do the podcast with him, I thought he would want to talk about ratings and reviews of software and the future of, um, you know, uh, of G2 um, being, being the future of you know, the, the analyst world as well, et cetera, et cetera. 
But what he actually wanted to talk about was conscious leadership. Uh, it's the leadership framework and methodology he uses. He's used it before G2. He now uses it at G2. He credits it with changing his personal and professional life. And it's something that his entire management team uses now. I mean, they start meetings with conscious check-ins, like basically like short meditations and all these things that were, you know, a ton of new concepts to me, um, but just really powerful frameworks. And so those are some of my favorite conversations where I get on and expect that, you know, people are going to want to talk about the obvious thing, what their company does or what they've experienced in their background. Then they have these, you know, you know, interesting ideas like uh, Goodard with, uh, with conscious leadership. So that's another really good one to, to check out. What other uh, thought leaders are out there in the PLG community that people should be checking out or, or doesn't it have to be PLG could be broader, you know, SaaS type of thought leaders, things that you, you pay attention to. Yeah, I am a big fan of, you know, in on the marketing side of the house, this probably will not be a surprise to anybody in Boston, but, you know, Dave Gerhart and everything that he does with uh, with marketing in general. And he's got a new book that's coming out that I'm excited to check out, Founder Brand. Um, and he's been really leaning into things um, with his uh, DGMG, um, you know, group that, that he's built. So, you know, can never get enough of his LinkedIn content, his podcast content um, and, and other things that he puts out there. So, so that's always great. Um, specifically on product-led growth, I mean, I'm a big fan of Reforge, uh, both as the content that they publish, as well as the programs that they host to help people learn how to do PLG as actual practitioners. Um, and, and so Reforge is another one that I would point to. Here's a secret. I think I've mentioned this in the podcast before, but Dave Gerhardt, I owe him a, a world of gratitude. This is one of the reasons why I do the podcast, because I was such a fan of uh, tech in Boston. And he you know, went off to do great things in his marketing career and kind of let that to the wayside where I'm like, oh, I could pick that up. And just everything he does is always a couple steps ahead where I'm like, okay, I need to be doing video on LinkedIn. He, he was one of the first people I remember doing it. Now everybody does it, but he was one of the first people. And that's when I started really thinking deeply about how do I incorporate video into my LinkedIn strategy, which is uh, obviously worked out well. So I owe him a debt of gratitude. He's amazing. Yes. Yeah. If you want to know what, uh, what to be focusing on six months from now, 12 months from now in marketing, yes. just look at what Dave's talking about today. <laughs> He's very yeah. prescient in that regard. He's amazing. Well, you're back in uh, Southern California and LA now. So what do you like to do for fun outside of work? Yeah. So, I mean, um, I, I did uh, relocate back to uh, Southern California during the pandemic and it's, uh, it's been great to be back on, on home turf. Um, and honestly, one of the first things was just, I forgot how nice it is that, uh, it's, it's warm every day of the year. here. <laughs> <laughs> What's that feel like? That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Yeah. It's, it's, I try not to rub it in uh, with my colleagues when they're sitting on, on a zoom in January and it's snowing in the background in Boston, which I did, I experienced for 11 years. So, you know, I, I did my time, uh, and then it's 70 degrees outside and sunny and beautiful. So, you know, trying to enjoy that as much, you know, I uh, love uh, it's a big thing to go hiking, like recreational hiking, but like a short little hike in the city um, in L.A. And so I'm kind of been discovering that up in Griffith Park and, and those kinds of things. And, and again, it's warm every day. So it's always a good day to, to go for a short little 45 minute hike uh, up in the hills. And so so that's been super fun. That's awesome. Well, Blake, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background story, uh, the great work you're doing as part of the OpenView team, and all the really deeply insightful information about PLG. It's such an important part of thinking through building a company. So all that insight is tremendously uh, valuable for entrepreneurs. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Keith. Uh, great to be on the show. 
Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.